This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. There is a potential upside in social media besides encouraging more dynamic communications and facilitating human networks. The end of bad products. Sure, bad is subjective, but so is why we buy or don't buy certain products. Could one of the effects of social media be that we see fewer and fewer inferior products existing in the market? Tim Queenan, Executive Director of Digital Presence at Draft FCB, explores what happens when a commodity-driven market is regulated by the crowd and what types of products and experiences start to emerge. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Uh, My name is Tim Queenan. Um, I run digital at Draft FCB New York. And I come to you today as a business strategist in kind of marketing clothes. Um, for the past 10 years, I've been doing uh, uh, channel marketing, um, but really from a kind of a business point of view, and really been focusing in on digital and how that can help, not just from a communications point of view, different clients, and even when I was client side, help our different products, but also change the way that our business our businesses operate um, and actually bring out new innovative ideas uh, for everyone. So. One of the things that, uh, that's been bugging me, and it keeps me, I don't sleep very well. I, I try to go to bed around 10 o'clock, I wake up at 2 o'clock, then I wake up at 3 o'clock, then I'm up at 4.30, and I finally roll out of bed by 6. And something that's been bothering me a lot lately, just because I'm on Twitter, doing Facebook, and just talking to a lot of different people, is this idea of um, better products and how social media can help with that. Um, and something that I've been talking to a lot of my colleagues about and different people in the industry about are, you know, Will, as we interact less, will we act, interact less and less with uh, different inferior products over time because of the influence of social media? And I know that's a loaded statement, and it's kind of meant to be, um, because what is inferior is subjective. Um, but as we start looking to the different experiences and products and services that start coming out because of the influence of social media, I get very excited because I feel like there's new opportunity for all of us, especially in user experience design, um, to be putting out uh, better products for our different clients. So we all know this. Um, it's kind of a hidden secret in marketing and in product development that product experience always have flaws in them. Um, some of them are per- by perception. So consumer just doesn't like it, so they see it as a flaw. Other times, flaws are often designed in. Um, it's one of the tricks because we care about lifetime value. We want people to buy more from us. We don't want them just to be a one-time purchase. So as we start looking at our different products and whether those products are a consumer package good, if it's um, something like a website that you go to, you often design in little things that you know that you're going to have to uh, fix later because it helps build momentum and, and it helps build stickiness with our, our different end users. So some of the tricks of the trade are volume. You know, you only get a five-ounce version when you really want the 12-ounce version, so you have to keep buying more and more so the thing gets used up. Uh, physical decay, um, the thing just kind of, you can't, it becomes unsafe after a while, and 
Uh, you have to buy more of that product. And then usability and usefulness. We try to perfect our products, but we know when we go to market a lot of the times, they're only ready, you know, maybe they're 60% of the way, maybe they're 80% of the way there, and this is when we start getting into versioning control. We're going to put out new versions. We'll do new releases, um, and the consumers will love us more and more for that. You know, from a consumer point of view, it gets a little bit annoying because it's always like, why couldn't you have designed that in the first time? Um, and this is something that they're always asking, saying, couldn't we get that in, and why, why can't I take the battery out of the iPhone? Um, why, why do I have to, when it dies, do I have to get the whole thing replaced? So it's different things that um, we as marketers, but also in product development, do to make sure that we're um, enhancing and also extending our product's lifetime um, so that we get increased value from our end consumers over time. And it's really trying to find that balance. So with all this said, um, I think one of the things that we have to start thinking about is um, this idea of, but if we, if we start thinking of the perfect product and what the perfect product could be, because from a, a, from a manufacturer's point of view, a perfect product is something that you keep buying. You keep giving me morning and, uh, money and I keep producing for you. Um, but this idea from Schumacher about, but could small be more beautiful? Uh, this was a book that came out in the 70s. I'm, I'm assuming most of you are familiar with it and have read it. Um, but it's a new orientation for how we actually look at production. Um, it was talked a lot about yesterday. Jeff was bringing it up in his in his own way, about decentralizing the creation of different experiences um, around emergent uh, ideas and, and emergent organizations uh, to empower a more creative output. And this is something that really excites me, because as we start looking at social media in particular, this is where we actually gain a lot of traction. A lot of marketers, and I'll talk a little bit about this, and, um, and different companies see social media as something that is a channel communications solution not necessarily a business solution. They, they see this as something to distribute a message. Um, but if we start thinking about what's the best product or service that we want to bring to market, and we start looking at social media from that angle and how it can help us, it starts helping us think of these new emergent organizations that live out there, self-forming, that actually can help um, bring better products to market and actually increase our lifetime value, not from a, you know, from a profitability point of view, but also from a relationship point of view. So when we look at social media, it's actually one of those things that allows us to get very small. So when we say small is beautiful, social media, for me, I always think of it as uh, the force multiplier. Uh, Jeff talked about it yesterday, I think, in terms of leverage and how you can get more leverage out of it. But force multiplier, it's a, it's a military term. It means a guy with a tank is more powerful than 100 guys with spears because of the force that technology brings to it. Um, you're able to do more with it. And when we look at social media and its interactions, we look at that network effect and how it, we're able to do more um, with less. And that as we look at social media, and I always think of social media in terms of self-expression. It's one of the great things uh, Clay Shirky during his TED Talk uh, this year talked about it being the greatest um, uh, evolution of self-expression in, in human history. I think there's, there's something key to that because it's something that, it's the reason why a lot of us are on Twitter. We're not there to buy products. We're there to express our points of view. We're there to follow other people's points of view and share more with others. The idea of sharing collaboration is important. So when we look at social media, we have to remember that self-expression is important and that we not only promote it, but we advocate for it in all aspects of it. Um, and that's going to help get better products for us. So an example of how this works, um, just a show of hands, Mike, Michael Jackson, died, and I, th I think it's okay to talk about this. I know Patrick Swayze yesterday wasn't, but I think we're at an okay point with this. Um, just a show of hands, how many people found, got this statement in some form 
just through unconventional media. So I'm just defining that as Twitter, SMS, Facebook. Um, how many people actually got it from watching the TV during a news hour? Yeah, so pretty few. Um, next question, just real quick. How many people found out about this within minutes of the actual event happening? So what was interesting about this event is that we all found out very quickly before he actually died. So we were all talking about it and sharing information. And he actually didn't die yet. He died an hour later. But we were all pundits in our own respects because we were sharing information. And what happened was the traditional organizations that were supposed to deliver this information that we um, go to and watch on TV, that we pick up the paper or read on Kindle, didn't have the scoop. They didn't have the information yet um, because they were too slow. They're not, they weren't built for this kind of event. They were built to do research. They were built to put information out that's credible. And that's all very important. I know Mary talked about that yesterday, how we have to make sure that we're putting out credible information. But there is something to, to, to say about timeliness of information um, and how it's interesting when you actually saw CNN and New York Times, they were following what was happening on Twitter because they had no, nothing else they could do for about an hour, an hour and a half. So they had to follow it. So we would go to CNN and see what they were following, the same sources that we were going to. And, and this, for me, was really the turning point um, from a communication point of view on social media. Because finally, from a mass um, point of view, and if you look at those as products, those different organizations, they no longer could keep up. There's no way that they could uh, disseminate uh, credible information in a timely manner. And Michael Jackson's death was just a great example of how quickly that can happen and how they have to truly rethink the way that they put information out there uh, moving forward. And I think for a large part, when we look at uh, marketing and communications and, and its role in social media and then in putting out better products, we have to rethink. A lot of marketers are thinking in an old way. And again, they're just thinking of social media as something that is to communicate the benefits of a product as, as opposed to actually being the product. And I think that's an important thing that a lot of marketers, at the end of the day, it's are you going to swallow the red pill or the blue pill? Are you going to be interested in being more the product that you're putting out there? Or are you going to actually just be um, communicating only benefits of something that doesn't live um, necessarily within the media itself? So most, most companies, uh, a lot of my clients right now, this has really been an interesting year because they're all talking to me about what can I do in social media. They finally got over that kind of nervousness. They're like ready to jump in and they're kind of drooling over it, but they see it as a tactic and they're very tactical about it. So they're just saying we're going to create 500, one client literally was going to create 200 different Twitter accounts because they had 200 different products. So they said, well, that obviously logically makes sense. And we had that, you know, traditional um, conversation around that's a product-orientated strategy, not a consumer-orientated strategy. And we eventually got them to create one Twitter account and really test an editorial strategy. But they really don't think of it as anything but a bit of sameness. Um, I lost the slide. Um, as sameness, it's the same old thing that they do over and over again. Um, so companies are pretty short-sighted when they're looking at social media. And I think it's a, it's a real shame and challenge when they're only looking at it from a communication point of view. They're seeing it from a PR announcement, from customer service, from networking, customer acquisition, uh, loyalty building. These are all very important. They all need to happen, but they're not the end and be-all for how a company should be using social media, especially when they're putting products out there. Otherwise, it just remains a communication um, challenge. 
So this idea of them, they're, they're using these because they're saying, instead of releasing the press release um, through that PR page, I'll put it on Twitter. Instead of networking with people at events in person, I'll do it through Facebook. And it's just, it's, it's using the same behaviors in different channels, and those channels weren't necessarily built to do that, um, and they feel like this is just a faster way to do business. But at the end of the day, it's, a, it's, it's actually a worse way to do business, in my opinion, because you're building in a philosophy that eventually is going to just lead you down a very bad path um, and not make you relevant or authentic to your customers anymore. So here's, the, here's what I call the marketer's pretext. Because um, when I talk to, to different marketers, they say, well, I don't think I should go on social media because our, our product's actually not that good. Um, there's some issues with it. We know next year we're going to be doing something else, and that's going to be the killer year. Um, so it's always, if the product experience sucks, social media is not really going to fix it, and they're looking for social media to do something or be something that it might not be. Um, and what they mean by fix is communicate the end benefits of it, and they don't feel like they have the end benefits yet. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. I think recently we've actually had some great examples um, through the press of what social media has been able to help fix for marketers and really help them challenge what that is. So by fix, if you mean help kill off really bad and sucky experiences, that's pretty good. I don't know if you guys have seen these movies, but a lot of people haven't anymore because, um, I mean, there's a lot of press. Time.com put out an article a couple weeks ago about the new Twitter effect and how it's going to help kill Hollywood movies. So it used to be that a movie succeeded, uh, the, um, they would know if it succeeded if the box office was good opening weekend. And that was really a Thursday, Friday through Sunday stretch. Now it's what happened opening night. Because whatever happens opening night and the, what people are tweeting about or on Facebook talking about or just any other word of mouth um, tactics that they, they feel like we can start understanding um, if we have to pull back marketing because there's a lot of there's a lot of money that goes into these. Bruno actually dropped 40% from day one to day two. Now, whether that was the Twitter or other social media had all that effect, you know, probably not. It was an influencer in it. But it is interesting to start seeing that how different products um, are quickly coming off the shelf because the, the crowd has reacted to them and we no longer have to put up with watching a lot of those commercials for something that we already know isn't going to, we're not going to attend. So we're, the, the crowd is quickly helping uh, siphon out all the different sucky products and, and hopefully promoting better products. And I think a great example of um, promoting better products, I'm a big fan of this, uh, this company, I know most of you probably know and hopefully have bought through it or at least participated in it, but Threadless, um, using different, uh, finding different experiences that you actually want. Um, and it's a really great strategy that they're using that the voting strategy there is I'm voting because I want to buy something or I would buy something if it was produced. So it's putting out concepts, allowing artists and different designers to have stuff out there saying, this is my point of view and letting the crowd actually say, if this was produced, I would buy it. And it's creating its own little economy because it's allowing different buy the votes to say, what's the different price point for this? And they can actually control in a better way and in a more open way and definitely fair way what's, what should be produced and at what price it should be produced. Um, I think this has moved a, a bit beyond just an experiment. I think it's something that you're going to see more and more of um, that's coming to market, and there's different examples of this. Um, just by the way, this is in July. This was the most popular uh, voted T-shirt design out there. I know we've all heard about kitty porn and stuff, but this is, I mean, I don't, this in getting um, Rickrolled, I think there's books that have to be developed about this. 
as we really talk about emergent um, ideas that come out, some of them are wacky, but kitties on the internet, when they do wacky things and they seem kind of tasteless, are super hot. So the next time a client of yours wants to do something, definitely um, throw a kitty concept in there uh, to help sell it and say, this is a guarantee uh, for you. Uh, one of the other examples out there that I think is great, and it's uh, part of this open innovation model, is Quirky. Um, when you go to Quirky, um, and I, I don't know how long this is going to last. It's, it's, it's uh, powered by Cluster that's out there. But it's this idea. I, like, I love the concept of it when we're talking about getting to better products and getting to things that are smaller and better for us and customized. Is this the rise of the end user kind of prototype marketing? We're starting to see stuff that necessarily aren't ready for market yet, so like Threadless and like what's on Quirky, but that can be produced if we participate in it. So platforms like this, I think it's opening up different kinds of different types of companies for us. It's no longer a company coming to us saying, by the way, we've done R&D for five years and we know 2% of you are going to buy it, but that's all we care about, and we're going to market to everyone, everyone's going to have to hear that. Now we're finally seeing products that we actually can participate in, and when they do come to market, we can be real advocates for. So when we start looking at open innovation models and you know, a lot of different examples of that, I think companies really have to start looking at what Threadless and Quirky are doing and saying, how does that relate to how I develop products? And how does that relate to what I put out there? Again, the product could be a packaged good. It could be a website. It could be some kind of service. But how am I getting it out there in a more open uh, way? And you know, you have to really think about what's the right user experience for that. Um, but it's definitely something that when you start getting this participation, people will become your biggest advocates when these things do eventually go to market. Another uh, example of this is in, within op in open innovation is um, that's not necessarily a product per se, it's, so it's beyond the assembly line, is uh, DIYcity.org. Uh, um, if you haven't been there, definitely check it out. It's, it's pretty fun. Um, what you do is it's, it's, it's addressing urban renewal from a guerrilla, po guerrilla tactic point of view. It's from the, the, the people who actually live in the city. And they're at, it's, at, it's a platform for different people throughout the city to say, what needs to change? Uh, the bus routes. It, so it's becoming an advocate network that I'm sure over time you're going to see, if it's not this, more of these, having more influence in public policy because it's actually becoming the staging ground for a lot of the debate for different cities. So whatever you want to do if you're, and, and, and what, what the city is supposed to do, this is going to become one of those trusted sources that a lot of our older, plat, older outlets like the CNNs, New York Times are going to have to go to because this is where the communication is actually happening and this is where the new product ideas are actually coming out of um, because they're all emergent. So I think as we start thinking about products and what's the perfect product, this is the classical description of what perfect products are. And it's very much from a manufacturer's point of view. It's definitely not from a user's point of view. Um, so number one, fulfills a need or a want. And there's a lot of debate if you're in a manufacturing industry or if you're in marketing what that actual need or want are. But we, we all know and we've all kind of drank that Kool-Aid that we have to satisfy a want or need. That's why we're in business. Um, has, has to either be a niche market or appeal to a mass market. So it's basically anyone. So it, it, it's kind of the caveat, like I just have to find someone who's interested in buying that. Has high margins, so for the perfect product, I can um, produce it at a low cost, but I can sell it at a much higher cost. Um, has high perceived value, so what's the thing that people 
want to buy more of because it has either, and this is the rise of brands, and this is why you always talk about brand awareness and the role of brands. You know, maybe the, the perceived value isn't in the actual widget because maybe that's all it is. Maybe it is a commodity, but maybe if we call it something cool, it'll become something different. So, you know, you see this in toothpaste and, uh, and, and in different uh, in soaps and stuff where, you know, there, there are differences and there are different ingredients and there are different ethical practices, but they really start playing up some of those, how it's produced and what the brand is associated with it and the actual packaging design to say and where you place it on the store itself that there is more perceived value in it. This is my favorite. Must be replenished or repurposed by the customer often. We want you, and this goes back to what I started with in the flaws, we don't want you to continue using just that one item over time. We want, you to, we want this thing to have some type of life time and die and then get the next one and then continue on this little cycle. And it's, and it's kind of disturbing over time because you know, we, companies could actually produce much better products. It's just not in their best interest to do that because then you're going to buy something once for 20 bucks and they'd rather you buy it for 10 bucks 10 times. Um, so, you know, they're fine. They, they slash costs all the time just to get um, you to buy that product more and more and build in their little tricks and flaws to make sure that this thing um, needs to be repurchased. And then finally, from a classical perspective, um, the perfect product also has to be easily upsold and cross-sold. You can't be a company with one product. Um, it's short-sighted and you will be in business for about 12 months. Um, what you have to do is you have to think about what's your portfolio um, and how do these different products and services work together. Um, again, it's kind of like when you're looking at user design as well, the different information that you're laying out and how it all relates to one another. You have to have a balance there and have different tasks and different needs satisfied. And you have to be able to have different products that do that. You could build one product that satisfies all that. But then again, you'll have different companies copy that one product and then you're the one product company. You have to have multiple products, multiple services in order to stay competitive because you're always trying to figure out which one do I extend more and which one do I push more of. So, when I, you know, when I was reading through these recently, again, I got really depressed because I felt like a schmuck because I was like, I do this, you know, I, I do this for a living, um, but, and I love it, but when you look at it on the face value, it feels very much not about, you don't, you lose the consumer in it. You lose what's the best product, what's the beauty behind the product, and why I actually want to buy products. Um, it becomes very much an engine. And this is definitely, you know, from an industrial revolution point of view, these are the core tenants that came out of that to say this is how we will be successful. So I've been wondering, you know, what, what are the ways that we can, um, what are new ideas that, have, that, that can go into uh, the perfect product or the, the simple, most beautiful product? And I think there are some different ideas that are emerging right now that help do that, that focus a lot on the user's behavior with the actual product. I think that's something from the previous screen um, when we went through that list that really you didn't actually understand. You got the user only from they want or need something, but you didn't understand their behavior with the product besides I have to get another one. I have to replenish on it. I ran out of shampoo, so I need more shampoo. So um, what are the different user behaviors that we can focus on that interact with the product that actually add more value to the product and more perception that this is in tr truly moving to better products or more perfect type of products? So for me, um, there's three. Uh, the first one is experience get more valuable as more people interact with them. 
Uh, and this is a little bit like uh, what Jeff was talking about yesterday from an uh, ecosystem point of view when you're connecting the nodes. The more value is created actually when I can get more people to debate that product and actually interact with that product because I can get actually more perceived value because I've started a conversation around this product. A great example of this that was a little bit unintentional but very well executed was the um, uh, Dove campaign that came out a couple years ago on True Beauty. Um, they put out that we want to have, the whole purpose wasn't to actually define what is true beauty. The whole purpose was to crowdsource, to get the entire crowd involved, um, to start interacting. And by that, there was a perceived increased value in what Dove was and what that bar of soap was, um, just because of the interaction. So I believe that the more that we can get um, people interacting with products, the more value that will um, come up from it. The second is around uh, experiences encourage even more value when end, use can actually, end users can actually contribute, uh, customize, and extend these different ideas. Um, Rob Boothby on his blog talks a little bit about this, and he's written a couple white papers about it. But I think it's important because this gets into um, my role as a user and really starts talking more about my behaviors and how I influence those different products. Um, this is something that... Um, Companies and marketers are extremely scared about. The first one, if I can get people to interact in some way, I can somehow control that. I can filter out stuff that I don't want to go out there. But this one, if we're actually letting people contribute, customize, and extend these different experiences, now you're giving up a lot of control and you're giving over a, you're giving over a lot of what you would put in different um, for people's jobs like R&D to other people to help do it. And there's obviously been some great um, examples of where this has worked well with different um, tech products like Linux and um, other solutions out there where you actually have people help find the bugs and help extend what the, this thing can actually do. Um, but I think more and more as we start looking at our different products, whether it's a website that we're designing or something we're putting out there to be bought in a store, we have to think about how does this work. And it's just not someone going to a website and kind of customizing their own version of it. It's really trying to think in a multi-channel experience and not just think in terms of what's on the, the, the TV screen or what's on the um, computer screen, but what is that third place, what is that fourth place that they start to experience this product and they're able to, we're able to support these behaviors. Because if we do, even if we step into it a little bit and not full-fledged, we're going to get a lot of appreciation and we're going to get a lot of valuable information and our product at the long, at the end of the day will get better because the perceived value of it will increase over time. And lastly, an, another idea of how to make products better, um, especially with social media, is um, that experiences that live as part of the network and in a real-time fashion stay more relevant and encourage more authentic interactions. Um, people, um, products, Marketing, we're very reactionary. We like to sit back and watch. We like someone else to go and do something, um, and we're going to wait to see how you know how a solution works out before we jump in. Um, we're very passive. Organizations are very passive. Uh, it was talked about yesterday how they're very closed off. They don't want to be social, um, but we have to start becoming and interacting in a more real-time way because the platforms are already out there. Um, we've passed that point of being able to say, well, maybe it's not for me. It's, you know, as I talked earlier about Michael Jackson, this is how information is being distributed. There are new products that are becoming, um, that are coming from this. And if these experiences that we create, these products aren't able to interact um, in a real-time way, they won't be relevant because just like those movies, you'll be given one day and then you're out. 
you know, Hollywood has to start thinking about, they, they, they can't be fearful about, okay, I only have Friday night. It's what's the system that if you do put out a sucking movie um, that can react to the criticisms and actually help debate it so that you're not just pulling in and, and just not having people all of a sudden drop off within one night. So what are the different systems you're going to put in place? Because there is a creative point of view f to a product, you know. It's, it's not, you don't engineer just because of the science. There's, there's a creative aspect to it, that untangible, that sometimes people like and won't like, and you have to, you have to let experience and market ha help the market define what that is. But if you're not connected in real time, um, it won't be authentic and it will be, be perceived as something that you can skip over. So when I started, I talked about it as small being beautiful um, and something that I think we have to think about as we start developing more products. And I, I really think it's important that um, when you think about that, it's focusing on that end user behavior. Um, I know this is, this is one of those kind of potentially throwaway slides because it's like behavior versus featureitis and what's, you know, make sure that you, you think about the end behavior trying to incite. But I feel like when we start to think about um, the values that come of products and how they become more perfect when there's interaction allowed within products, that the behaviors we want to incite become the point of differentiation for us. Um, I don't know if you, the, the, when we think of user experience as the point of differentiation, I think it's, it's beyond just what the interface is. Um, so when we, you know, when I heard that yesterday, I, I took a note and I was like, you know, we have to make sure that it's just not the thing that's out there, but it's also that untangible experience that I'm getting and that feeling that I'm getting, that behavior that's inciting me because it feels good to run in Nike shoes. Um, and it's not just because they're better designed, but it's also promoting a better lifestyle for me because I'm running and I go to Nike ID to do that. So we have to really think through what are the behaviors we want to incite and organize for that and organize our different experiences for that um, versus um, this idea of feature writers and the user preferences because you're just going to get stuff that um, appears like garbly gook over time. So these are kind of my little tenets that I use with my team back in New York on, you know, when we're developing different uh, online or digital experiences, what are the things that should be out there and that we have to be thinking about if this was to be a perfect product and, you know, we always debate what's the perfect product, but it has to be intuitive. Um, I think that's something that, you know, this community definitely understands when it comes to usability and usefulness, um, but from a mass appeal, definitely the iPhone has helped um, with that. Um, and, and having everyone else understand what an intuitive experience feels like. It has to be elastic. Um, it has to be able to change. It has to be able to grow to where it needs to grow and have the, the end user help push it in that direction. Otherwise, it's restricted and it's, it's going to break um, and it's going to become irrelevant. It has to be intelligent. In fact, it should be really hyper-intelligent. It should be able to... Um, see what's going out there in that real-time way and be able to respond to that and learn from that and then reorganize around that. Um, something that I think is great and scares a lot of marketers, but I think it's something important, is it has to be polarizing. Um, when you think about the perfect product, if you're designing for the masses, it's going to suck. You're designing then for no one. You're designing to the lowest common denominator. The reason that products are good and the reason we're all in business is because there's challenges out there that we have to solve. So we have to put those challenges out there and let those poles be there and support it because then we'll create better solutions and we'll figure out what the actual problems are that we're trying to design for. Because the first thing you design for isn't necessarily the challenge in the long run. There's something deeper there. So make sure that um, there's always something polarizing with these products. And finally, because it is a business, we are in an economy, it has to be enterprising. It can't just be designed because, or built because it's cool. 
you, you know, there's tons of flashy little balls out there that people say, look what I did. But if it doesn't have that enterprising quality to it, and I think in social media, and I love what Jeff was talking about yesterday around business and social, if you're not really understanding the business fundamentals of it, then it's going to have no traction over time. And um, I think for a large part, a lot of organizations have only seen the top three or four things here and said, this is why I don't do social media, because it has nothing to do with my business. We haven't necessarily done the best job in showing how these, are, these solutions that we're designing are more enterprising and actually are going to help businesses forward. We are seeing some come out that I pointed out earlier, but I think this is something we really have to focus on um, and make sure that um, we're developing moving forward. So just a few implications for product innovation. Our constant friction, and it's the thing that's always going to be out there, is this idea between the market drivers and the technology drivers. I don't know if it's a balance. I don't know if it's a tug of war, but it's kind of like the yin and yang. They have to exist because you kind of have to have technology innovation out there to help drive what can be, but you also have to have the market wants and needs to help say what should be. So these things have to live there, and we're always going to have that friction or, or, or balancing act that has to happen between there. But our new dilemma is we start thinking about these new products and you know thinking a little smaller and how these different emergent networks come about is how do we actually build them? Um, we're used to structured processes. We're used to the assembly line. We're not used to ad hoc processes. And you know we've been getting it better at it when we look at agile development and what can happen and how we can um, source different ideas from the crowd. But this is something that has not been figured out. It exists, I believe, only really on slideware right now. And no one's really doing this in a way that is sustainable. There's some neat little ideas that are very small and support very specific types of products. Um, but if we're going to really get to a better system where you have more ad hoc, ad hoc processes in there, um, we really have to rethink um, how our different products, uh, systems, and instruments are developed over time. So just um, a closing thought for you guys uh, to take away is to think big and act small. Um, think big is in relation to the network. I, I'm a big believer in content and context are equal. I know it's always about is content king and you know where you place it. But as a communication uh, specialist, I see the actual creative and the media being one and one because it doesn't matter if I if, where I place and what I'm saying have to be thought of together. You can't separate the two. Otherwise, you're putting out half a product or a broken product. So when you start thinking about your different designs, you have to think in that bigger sense and across the network and how that all comes together. And lastly, with, think, with Act Small, it's finding that beauty by inviting in the end user behavior. Um, that's the only way we're actually going to create new beautiful products and when I say beautiful, more useful and, and things that people want to buy. Because at that small level where we actually let them into that process is when we're going to actually have products that can help move and do better things and new emergent ideas can come from it. So I, I challenge you all to, as you look through your projects, to make sure you're thinking big and you're acting small so that um, we can all experience a better user experience and product design moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for questions, as always. If you're looking for books, now is your chance to ask really smart questions. And I'm running. Uh, hey, uh, you mentioned Threadless as a good example of a kind of consumer company that's using social media well. Do you have any examples of B2B companies that are using social media to interact with their kind of audience? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been around for a while. I, I, I'm not a huge follower of it, so I've, I, I look at it every couple months, but what Microsoft is doing with Channel 9. Um, I think, you know, it's obviously from a developer point of view, so it's a business-to-developer community, um, but which still qualifies as B2B. I think it's, they've done some interesting stuff, especially when that first launched. Um, and, you know, Microsoft, when they launched that, you know, the, 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 the hidden agenda there was that it was a rogue launch, that the PR people in that company did not want this thing going out, and the, the product team that developed it just put it out, and all of a sudden they saw how great it was, and then there was a PR announcement saying, hey, this is great, we've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, so um, I think that's a great example of, of bringing it. And I think when you look at the B2B world and in, just in social and even in the consumer world, the development community is obviously one of those areas where we can start getting really emergent ideas very quickly because you can. Uh, there's different skill sets out there who are willing to act on your behalf because they want to create these different experiences moving forward. Proximity gets uh, the next one. Uh, the uh, alternative model for uh, user experience or product experience that you present seems to exist more in the digital realm. Can you give many or any examples of physical products that perhaps uh, take this approach to? Sure. Um, and I am more of a digital expert, so it obviously will skew that way. Um, when I think of just products in general, I try to think less channel-specific. So just the emerge the channels coming together and how they're all influencing. So digital is just a component that's going to kind of be in the DNA of everything. Um, I think there's a lot of different, they're not fully out in mass form, but they're smart products that are coming out, especially in the white goods space. So when you look at different uh, uh, dryers, and whatnot that actually have are, are part of this connected home. So we have a lot of different businesses out there, like Motorola, who's talking about the connected home and how they're making all your uh, traditional white label products more intelligent and how they're connecting it to the network and learning about what's happening in that home ecosystem and then what's happening beyond that. You're seeing a lot of that happening um, in the entertainment space, so um, kind of that home hearth. So the, 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 the TV screen, TiVo, everyone, whether you're a TV manufacturer, you're a desktop, um, produce a manufacturer, whether you're a service that sits on that, so t uh, Time Warner, Cablevision, everyone's trying to attack that. And um, again, it has digital undercurrents because it's the new tools that we can use to get that, but its m manifestation is definitely in a physical form within the home environment itself. It's, it's an appealing idea, I think, the uh, concept of, I think, driving product development through social media. But is, is there any way to sort of mitigate the risk of the, the sort of squeaky wheel effect coming into play? Because you think about the imbalance of creators to consumers of social media, you really wind up designing for sort of a really small fraction of your potential audience. Is that a yeah. consideration? Um, I think we have to wait and see a little bit. I, I, I love the concept, and I, I know there's some flaws to it, but I also think it's okay to have some of those squeaky wheels because we're creating, like when I think about, for me, when I think about the perfect product, it's something that's actually understanding how I want to interact with that product. Even if that product is just developed for a smaller subset, what I think is interesting when we start seeing some of these products out that are coming out there, um, it's only meant for a smaller niche audience, but sustainable. We could actually continue, you know, those old principles about replenish um, and to repurchase, still makes sense. You need to have to do that. You need to have lifetime value with our different customers. 
Um, but I think, you know, it's a bit of the long tail, how we have these different smaller, pro these different products coming up for smaller communities. It's okay if they're flawed, but their the perceived value is actually increased. And that's when marketing comes in and actually helps show that the true value here is beyond just what the widget or the commodity eventually will be, because eventually these things will become commodities. But um, the brand vision, that's part of it. And marketing can help support that. Okay, so very quickly, um, the whole Michael Jackson effect, and somebody even tweeted is that, you know, <clears throat> you know we're going to base things on that. Can you also talk about the Jeff Goldblum effect? The Jeff Goldblum Sorry. effect, the, the, the viral uh, uh, Twitter effect where... Uh, people were tweeting that Jeff Goldblum was dead, uh, picked oh. up by Australian okay. Okay. Uh, newspapers, Sorry. and yeah. uh, it became such a big deal that Stephen Colbert even yeah. had him on yeah. and did the whole joke. And that's one of my one of my concerns about um, you know the sense of mobocracy. It's just sort of the skeptical yeah. view on the other side. How do we remain skeptical? Yeah, I, th I think you know there's a lot of talk about like credibility of information um, coming through uh, Twitter and other um, outlets like that. I think one of the issues that you, you you've quickly that, that you quickly find is that, or not issue, it's, it's the crowd kind of regulates itself. So you will have these spurts, these quick fires that happen, and people will uh, gravitate towards that because the product's too early. We, we actually don't have a good quality assurance system on it to say, this is junk. I thought it was a great example yesterday when you, you saw the, the Facebook account said, how many people are really human here? We're not there yet. Um, because there, there are these different ways to get uh, misinformation out there. But I think as long as you allow for that and people interact with it, we will develop the different methodologies and technologies to help filter out. And the crowd, at the end of the day, wants the real information. I'm a bit of an optimist in that way, that we're all searching for what's actually credible out there and authentic, and that will quickly um, marginalize the pieces of information that were. But, you know, news media, they're pissed because they can't report on stuff, so they're reporting on what they can't report on, and they would love to put Jeff Goldblum as dead and put that out there and have all different reels on that because it keeps them in business. Anybody in, been invited to a mob family, family lately? <laughs> How about that for skeptical? One more question. Who needs a book? No more questions? One more we got a ah, look back here. Sorry. Um, so I, I was sort of thinking a bit about what you were saying in relation to the presentation yesterday about uh, Drupal, and it sounds a little bit like you're advocating a move towards creating frameworks rather than products, where it's a, it's almost like a tool set that you would put out there, and and then the the consumer gets to uh, be a little more engaged in the final realization of that product. And I wonder if you could comment on how that might, um, uh, how that meshes with the rise of rapid prototyping tools for uh, creating products in physical form. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm, I am more of a business strategist, so I, I think it, I'm not going to give you as much insight on rapid prototyping tools themselves, because I don't actually use them myself. but. Um, when we look at the product and this idea of framework versus product, I think it's a great notion because I think in the end we're going to actually have different types. Companies are going to move more towards alliances of, of, of creators. And those alliances, like the typical, typical company, won't be existing the way it is um, in the very distant future. It's obviously going to be there now because this is they're, they're out there and there's the profitability that they have to maintain. But you're going to have these different user groups um, coming together, creating products together that act as alliances, and 
what we need to do, and I think uh, tr traditional companies need to help put out those frameworks so they can leverage that as opposed to start competing with them because those different products will come out. And, and what we call the product before, companies are getting used to understanding that a product is something different moving forward. It can be just an experience that I'm willing to participate in and, and, and I perceive some value and, 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 and you know, put some cost against it. Um, but I definitely think alliances um, are going to be a new form of um, product development moving forward. Tim, thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. Tim Queen. Thanks, guys. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IDEA Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual IDEA Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.